Generosity means taking an emotional stand on behalf of someone else. Opening a door for someone when you don't have to, because it will ultimately help that other person create a community where you're happy to live in. Generosity is the surgeon looking you in the eye and being a human instead of just being a mechanic, extending something from within ourselves to help somebody else. A very warm welcome to the Bridging Podcast. It's your host, Özlem from Amsterdam. With my guests around the world, we will take you on a bridge to somewhere entrepreneurial, somewhere creative, a vulnerable place where we explore different viewpoints. In each episode, you and I learn more about personal growth, cultural diversity, and entrepreneurship. It's not only theory, but you will learn more about tools and how to apply them and move forward in life. I am super happy to announce that my guest today is the one and only Seth Godin. Seth Godin is the author of 20 books that have been bestsellers around the world and have been translated into more than 35 languages. He's also the founder of the Alt-MBA and Akimbo workshops, online seminars that have transformed the work of thousands of people. I actually did the podcast workshop exactly one year ago and started the Bridging Podcast. Seth writes about the post-industrial revolution, the way ideas spread, marketing, quitting, leadership, and most of all, changing everything. You might be familiar with his books, Lynchpin, Tribes, The Dip, and The Purple Cow. His book, This Is Marketing, was an instant bestseller around the world. His newest book, The Practice, which I have recently finished, came out at the end of 2020 and is already a bestseller. In addition to his writing and speaking, Seth has found several companies, including Yo-Yo Dine and Skidoo. His blog, which you can find by typing only Seth into Google, is one of the most popular in the world. And he already has written by today 8,204 blog posts, day in and day out. His podcast Akimbo is in the top 1% of all podcasts worldwide. Okay, Ladies and gentlemen, get ready, settle in. Here is Seth Godin. Welcome, Seth Godin, to the Bridging Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. It's such a privilege to have you here, actually. I would like to start with my first question. In your book, The Practice, and also in the podcast that you have been on, um, you talk a lot about the narrative in our hat the noise uh, i am just curious to learn more about do we have one voice are there more or what is that exactly oh i don't know what it is exactly uh, mm. i'm pretty confident we have way more than one voice in our head and the voice in our head sometimes helps us get to where we seek to go and in that case let's leave it alone but most of the time it exists to slow us down. It's a form of resistance, as Steve Pressfield would call it. It is uh, false fear that is left over from 50,000 years ago and living in the savannah. It is um, indoctrinated division and caste and this belief 
that we live in a world of scarcity. All of these things pile up in our head to keep us from being the contribution we're capable of being. Okay. And how we do we distinguish between the voice we actually want to follow and we the voice that we want to get rid of? Yeah, it's a great question. I, first, I'd say you can't get rid of the voice. What you might be able to do is live with it. What you might be able to do is dance with it. But the harder you try to make it go away, the louder it gets. Mm -hmm. What I have found is that having a GPS in your car makes it easier to go where you're going. That having a compass when you're camping makes it easier to get home. That having a North Star when you're paddling a boat makes it easy to figure out which direction you're going. And so it really helps to be clear about who we are seeking to serve and what change we are seeking to make. Not getting distracted by other people's compasses and other people's metrics. So, you know, we know that there's been generations of brainwashing of women about what they're supposed to look like. Well, are you really trying to make the editors of Vogue magazine happy? Is that really your goal? Or is there a different group of people or maybe even just yourself that you are trying to please each day mm -hmm. as you show up in the world? And if we give away our agency to the next person we bump into or the next thing that doesn't work, we've lost our North Star. And so getting super clear about what would it look like if I was doing the work I wanted to do and reminding ourselves of that over and over again, that's part of the mm -hmm. practice. Okay. So, and then the moment that you get the voices which actually align with that compass, follow it. And if it does not align, don't get rid of it, but even don't resist it. It might come back more the more you resist it. Just observe maybe. Yeah. And, you know, I often find myself saying to myself, which is mm -hmm. interesting, who's talking and who's listening. Um, that's interesting. You know, so you're, you're in a situation where, well, we just had two feet of snow here and you're driving on a road and it feels icy. And one part of your brain is, oh my God, it's super icy. Someone's going to slam through the intersection. We're going to be dead. And if you spend a lot of your conscious effort trying to calm down that voice, you will stop paying attention to the road. And instead you can say, that's interesting and go back to driving. Okay. That's interesting. And go back to driving. I like that. So it, 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 does that also mean like, for example, at the moment, I want to do creative work, for example, I want to start writing. And, you know, there is a lot of fear coming up, like my audience might want to do other things. They might think like, hey, but I can't do it. They might not like it. People laugh at me. I have never done it. Is this a way then to say, oh, it's interesting that I think like that, but somehow I will still do it? Well, let's be clear. Some of the people won't like it. Some mm -hmm. of the people will laugh at you. Some of the people will say, uh, you're new at this. What are you doing? That's mm -hmm. going to happen. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Now we know why you haven't done it before, but that doesn't keep you from doing it now. Yeah. Because if instead you say, there are three people who are going to read what I wrote and want to say thank you. That's enough. That's enough. Why would you hold something back from those three people? Anyone who doesn't get the joke, it's not for them. Yeah. 
Beautiful. Thank you so much for this. So I am curious, Seth, what is your narrative in your head? What, what makes you write 8,183 blog posts today? I hope I have counted it right. Did you count? I haven't counted in a very long time. I've been saying yeah, because... <laughs> less it was than that. November 6, 2017. So I added all the other days. 8,183 streak off. So what is the narrative that makes you write day in, day out, again and again? Well, this one's pretty easy, which is that 20 years ago, I made a decision. And the decision is that tomorrow there would be a blog post from me. It doesn't pay to spend a lot of time rethinking that decision because that decision has been a good one. It hasn't cost me very much and it's benefited me and other people. So the, if I can limit the number of useful decisions I make each day, I'm gonna do a better job on those decisions. And there are other decisions, like I brush my teeth every morning, I take a shower every day, I'm not growing a beard. I don't have a meeting with myself every day about whether I should grow a beard or not. I decided a long time ago, I'm not a beard guy. So I decided to be a blogger. And I revisit that decision every, you know, six months or so, but not every day. Okay. So in your book, The Practice, which actually came out of the Creative Workshop Seminar from Akimbo, and the title was going to be Trust Yourself, but your editor came with The Practice, which you really trusted a lot. Um, you talk a lot about trust yourself. And how do we really do that? You know, it is a nice sentence. It sounds really nice in the ear, but how are there practices that you can do to, in order to trust yourself? Well, this is, um, there are a bunch of ways that you can approach this question. One of them is from just a purely emotional standpoint. The other one is to be more strategic about it. And my approach is generally more strategic. And it, it goes sort of like this. Tomorrow is going to happen, whatever we do. Is it better to go into tomorrow trusting a voice, a practice, a process, a way forward? Or is it better to go into tomorrow filled with fear and not believing the things that have gotten you here so far? And I think it's pretty obvious if you look at it those two ways. We are better off with the first, that if you're going to get in a bus and it's going to you know, take you to Istanbul and you're on the bus, you need to trust the driver. If you don't trust the driver, don't get on the bus. But once you're on the bus, trust the driver because it doesn't matter whether you trust the driver or not, you're still on the bus. And so for me, that math says, oh, I need a practice. I need to be able to get rid of my need to control the outside world because I can't trust the outside world. I don't know them. I don't live with them every day. The outside world is the outside world. They're going to make their own choices. So who am I going to trust? Well, I can trust the person who I've been with for 60 years and say, together, we have an instinct and a rhythm. Let's persist, even if the outside world doesn't do what we expect. Okay. That's beautiful. Thanks. 
Um, so you also talked um, on, I think it was with Tim Ferriss or Tom Bilyeu about um, we can swim in ways that we actually didn't know we can swim. How can we actually discover that? Is that by doing the practice? Um, so I don't remember the exact riff. You're talking about actual swimming and how I learned how to swim no. better? Uh, no, that I use it as a metaphor, actually. Okay. But I mean, right. like, for example, the work we do when we, for example, would start a running practice where we actually never even did running. Right. And then we actually find out, wow, we are amazing in speed, actually, or, or long runs. Right. So there's nothing we have ever done where we are really good at it when we start. Why can't we acknowledge that? When, when it was time to learn to walk, we didn't know how to walk. When it was time to learn how to talk, we didn't know how to talk. When it was time to learn how to juggle, we didn't know how to juggle. So why is it because of all the media images that we don't want to start anything unless we think we're going to be good at it from the start? And you've experienced this inside the podcast workshop, right? That the thing that holds back most people from having a podcast is they don't know how they can end up on the other side, how they can be Mark Marin or, you know, somebody who's got a big, famous, popular podcast. So they yeah. don't want to even try. And I think the images of people doing it off the charts beautifully well can be inspirational. They can show us patterns and processes, but they can also be a roadblock because they can push us to say, well, I'm never going to be like that. And, you know, I, I'm happy to tell people the first hundred blog posts that I did, I had 20 or 30 or 40 readers. That's it. How else could it be? It has to be that way. And so if you want to run, run to the mailbox, turn around and run home. And then tomorrow run a little bit further. And maybe if you develop that practice in a hundred days, you'll have a form of running that people will, admi will admire, but you don't have it today. How could you? Yeah. Okay. So um, about um, consistency, yeah? like 8,183 blog posts, 20 best-selling books. Um, actually, what I also learned a lot in the Akimbo, within the Akimbo is just create and ship, create and ship. But in this process, how can we be consistent in being the best version of ourselves at any given moment. I'm not talking about the perfect version, but at that moment. Well, Aslam, what do you think happens when you're not that? Um, I think then I would be more actually in my head being scared and afraid, like, oh, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. Seth Godin is going to come on my podcast. Oh, you know, um, I'm not present at all. I'm actually making it worse than it actually is. So what you're saying is there's a voice in your head that doesn't trust you to do the work because it, and it's forcing you to not be present, which is undermining the work. Yeah, I'm right? saying that. And to that voice, I would say that's interesting. Thanks for letting me know. But instead, it sounds like you're fighting that voice and trying to persuade that voice that it's wrong. That voice will never admit that it's wrong, right? Anytime you're doing something that's important, resistance will make it so that you will not feel present because it is trying to protect you. 
it will feel safer to that primordial brain of yours, that little section of that brain back there, mm-hmm. will feel safer to it if you could just hide in a dark room instead. Do not attract attention. Do not get uppity. Do not ask for more than your share. Just back off. It doesn't trust you. And because it doesn't trust you, it's scolding you, it's scaring you, it's being hyperbolic, and it's getting what it wants when you have a fight with it. Because in the moment that you're having a fight with it, you are paying attention to it and not present. And so, you know, what Pema taught us is go back to the breath, go back to the work, go back to the practice. That's interesting. And then go back to work. Okay. Go back to the breath, go back to work, go back to the practice. Right. Nice. Okay. Um, in design matters, uh, which I really listened um, with a lot of uh, actually fun, uh, with Debbie Millman, you said, when in doubt, look for the fear inside yourself, in that bus that does not like you. Fear underlies so much of how human beings behave. And in the practice, you write that we will never work for someone that treats us like we treat ourselves. So actually two questions from this. Why are we treating ourselves really harshly? Plus, how can we treat our own boss, ourselves much better than we used to? Or then we still maybe do. So let's um, let's use an image from American movies. If uh, if your partner gets shot and is sitting there like with blood coming out of their shoulder, and they say something nasty to you, you say, "Well, it's okay because they're they just got shot, right?" Like I understand this person is in pain right now. They're allowed to be screaming and yelling. Well it's just as painful to be paralyzed by fear. It's just as painful to feel like you're drowning. It's just as painful to be uh, deeply worried and filled with anxiety about something. So when someone is, an outside person is undermining your work, is being brittle or abusive, there's no excuse for it, but the explanation for it is that they're afraid. And if you're going to work with them, it helps to look for the fear. Mm-hmm. And a great way to practice this is with four-year-olds or six-year-olds or eight-year-olds, because they are much more transparent. And if you can work with their fear, you quickly discover that the rest of their behavior changes. And the same thing is true for the brittle boss or the narcissistic colleague or friend. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true for the voice in our head that the reason it is busy being cruel to you, waking you up in the middle of the night to make you do your work again, the way, the one that tells you not to reach for something, the one that insults you, well, your inner voice is doing that because it's afraid. Look for the fear. And when we think about a diva, uh, you know, at La Scala in the opera or a diva who is having a tantrum on television, mm-hmm. divas are divas because they're afraid. And they're trying to control things that are uncontrollable. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of the cosmetics company Revlon, but uh, Revlon used to be headquartered about five miles from here. And the guy who ran it was named Charles Revson. 
And Charles Revson was a diva. Charles Revson was very difficult. And what he would do is back before digital, when you printed billboards and bus shelter ads and stuff, they had to adjust the ink by hand that was coming out of the printer. And so he would go to the press proof to make sure that the skin tones that they were printing out were just the way he wanted them to be. And it's very expensive to do this adjustment by hand because you're wasting all this paper and everything. It's going very fast. And every time he came, he would sit there for 45 minutes, an hour, making them do it again and again and again, rushing back with this thing and this thing until he finally he'd say, yeah, now you finally got it. So one time they um, saved the very first one that they showed him. Yeah. And after he had rejected 30 versions, they brought him back the first one. And he said, that's it. It's perfect. And what that was, was Charles Revson trying to control the uncontrollable. What that was, was Charles Revson acting like a diva because he thought that's what made him successful. And it actually isn't what made him successful. It was keeping him from being successful. And if we can see where the fear is, it's way easier to dance with it. Yeah. Seeing where the fear is, it's easy to dance with it then. Okay. So Generosity. In Akimbo, generosity. First of all, can you define generosity for us? What, what does it mean to you? <clears throat> well, let's talk about what it's not. It is not giving away things for free. That, in fact, it might be generous to charge more for something. Generosity means taking an emotional stand on behalf of someone else opening a door for someone when you don't have to, because it will ultimately help that other person create a community where you're happy to live in. Generosity is the surgeon looking you in the eye and being a human instead of just being a mechanic, right? Extending something from within ourselves to help somebody else. So, you know, my book costs money, my blog doesn't. But mm -hmm. I would like to think that they're both equally generous works because buying a book isn't the transaction. The transaction is caring enough to read the book. And so you and I are in a generous engagement, right? Mm -hmm. And right now we are. You're not getting paid to make this podcast. I'm not getting paid to be on it. The money isn't the point. The point is, can we see somebody else and do something in service of our community? Don't go anywhere, here's a message from our sponsor. Do you have a desire to level up? Do you have some emotions that you have been holding on to? When is it time to level up your self-leadership, to change and aim for the stars? Isn't it time to unlock your full potential and stand in your own power? I offer one-to-one -one coaching to people that are ready and willing to level up in any dimension of their life. Check out what other people say about working with me. Visit ozkanozlem.com slash coaching to find out more. The change is in your hands. Let's make it happen. Okay. So do you think people are able, Seth, to be generous while, they're, while they maybe are not generous to themselves first? Do we really need to be first? generous to ourselves and get that energy out of us in order to give it. Some of the most generous people I know are really cruel to themselves. And um, maybe those things go together. I'm not exactly sure. 
I do know the person you have to live with the most for the rest of your life is you. And being generous to yourself does not mean going to the spa, taking five days off, not working very hard and telling yourself you're doing a good job every day. That's not being generous to yourself. That's giving in to resistance. <clears throat> the, the, the generous part is showing up for the non-cynical part of you, showing up for the part of you that wants to make art, that wants to make things better, that wants to be in the world. You show up for that person. You don't show up for the skeptic and the cynic and the fearful one in your head. Mm -hmm. Showing up for that isn't being generous. That's just being afraid. Okay. So you write um, in the practice, generosity activates activates a different part of our brain and gives us more meaningful way forward. How do we come to that state? Well, I hope we can agree. I think we do that hustle is not a good look. Mm -hmm. No one wakes up in the morning hoping to get hustled. That the, the current trend of take what you can get is not resilient. Take what you can get doesn't work. What works is figuring out how to activate the best version of ourself, not because we're going to come out ahead, but because other people, the ones we serve are going to come out ahead. That's easier because what it does is it quiets the voice. It deals with the resistance because the resistance is no longer saying, oh, they're going to look at us. The resistance realizes you're doing it for those people. And that's why lifeguards jump in the water to save a drowning kid. Because in that moment, no one's looking at the lifeguard. Everyone's saying, how can I help? And if you can activate your best self by saying, I have something to contribute, as opposed to I have something to take, then it becomes a really useful, resilient hack for helping you go forward. Because you get to show up as a lifeguard, you're not showing up as a diva trying to control things. So showing up as I have something to contribute and not I have something to get there, but right. I, I want to contribute. Okay. So this sentence did so much with me, Seth. It's very simple, three-word sentence. I see you. And, you know, it touches my heart. For me, it is also a little bit um, entangled with Ubuntu. I am because of you, the African um, saying. This, I see you. I have experienced this in Akimbo so, so, so much that people are seen. You see people, they see you. Can you first of all explain, elaborate a little bit about what I see you means to you? You use it a lot in many ways. Yeah, it, it comes from the word Saobana uh, from the Zulu. And it doesn't mean your epidermis is showing. It means I see your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents. I see what brought you here in the first place. I see your dreams and your fears. I see the moments when you are uh, feeling like you are uh, in sync and kind. And I see the things you worry about. And I'd like to believe that almost everybody would like to be seen. That almost everybody feels like being truly seen is a magical gift. And 
it doesn't cost very much. In our rush to turn everything into a system, everything into a hack, everything into a computer program, we forgot that what people really want is to be seen. And there are so many ways to see somebody else that are way beyond the superficial thing of, I know your name. And what are there ways to see a person? Well, so you and I don't know each other very well, mm -hmm. but you are not hiding where you're headed. You're not hiding your desire to contribute to the community. You're not hiding the fact that you are on a journey to uh, turn on lights for people. And I could see that. And I think that when you saw that I saw that, it resonated with you. And I feel seen by you. I think in addition to just you spending the time and effort to understand what I'm trying to do, you also, I think, see that my passion is helping people get to the next level, which is exactly what you are doing. So that's why we're in sync, right? And many times I'll do a podcast with somebody and they're just reading a list of questions that somebody else wrote. And they're not even in the room. And that doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Okay. About the work we do, how could we start doing work that we are proud of? That we feel like I make this, which is also what you use a lot. I make this. Yeah, I'm, I think instead of saying, how do we make work that we can be proud of? It's how can we decide to be proud of the work we make? How can we decide to be proud yeah. of the work we make? So it's not about the work. It's about our decision to be proud of it. Because if we decide to say, I made this, I made mm -hmm. this, then the work's going to get better. But if we instead say, ah, I'm not going to be proud of it till you show me something that's perfect, then we're back to that same stuckness. Yeah. It's, and it's again the narrative in your head. You decide here. So, for example, let's say we practice something, we make the work, but actually the external world does not really cooperate with what we are making out there. And we are super used to, including myself, attached maybe even to the results. You know, I do this and I get this. I do this. That's what we are conditioned, indoctrinated by school system, family, right. so on. But how do we still keep going and create it no matter what? So it's easy to misunderstand what I'm talking about when we say that we must ship the work and that um, we have this practice. I am not saying it's going to work. I'm not saying you will have a number one song that your YouTube video will be seen by everyone. You can't control that. What I am saying is your work's probably not very good. But the only way it's going to get better is if you listen and learn and watch and then do it again. And that practice, pick anybody you want, right? Pick Spike Lee, pick somebody who's gone on to great success and go look at their earliest, earliest work. It's not very good. You don't win the first time you get at this. You might not win ever, but the practice simply says we get a chance to do it again. 
We ship something, we learn from it, and then we get a chance to do it again. We cannot control the outcome, but we can learn from it. So would you say like the things we would learn from it are maybe the what people call mistakes? You know, in our society, we make a mistake, we learn from it, and we keep going, which is actually even not... Um, how do you say it? Encourage in our schooling system, don't make mistakes. It needs to be perfect. Then ship it, then deliver it. Right. So there are mistakes and we can learn from them. But most of the time we're doing something that is called art. There isn't a right answer. And since there isn't a right answer, there isn't a mistake. Instead, what there is, is an instinct about what we've learned from what we're doing so that we can do it differently next time. Because every time we make a thing, so when Richard Serra makes a two million pound steel sculpture, he can't make it again. If he makes it again, it's a copy and no one wants it. He has to, now that that sculpture exists, the world is a different place. Now he has to make something new, something different. There is no right answer. So we have to get out of this mistake mindset. It's not that hard to avoid mistakes if you're doing work that fits a manual. If you're doing work where there's a standard, we know how to inspect for that. We're talking about something else. We're talking about exploring a frontier and learning as you go, but not holding ourselves up with difficult conversations about was that a mistake? Yeah. Okay. You said in one of the podcasts, you said, you know, the work we do uh, I don't know if I quote it right, but I'm going to try it. Um, just put the effort in the work and make it so good as if we would be gone, we will be missed. They will think like, oh, where is Seth? You know, if Seth did this, this, or another person, you know, Sarah, then it will be different. How can we create that? Well, when you use the word effort, And the word effort has a lot of different meanings, right? Uh, there is the effort of physical labor. There is the effort of sticking with something longer than most people would stick with it. But I think what we're talking about here is the effort of generosity, of choosing to show up in the world for other people in a way that might not work, that takes emotional labor from you. That is what gets us to be missed if we are God. Uh, that people want to be seen. Seeing other people takes emotional effort and labor. If someone is used to being seen by you and then you don't show up, they will miss you if you are God. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're somebody who makes bookshelves and your bookshelves are exactly like all the other bookshelves, we don't need you. We'll find someone else to make the bookshelves if you don't show up tomorrow. Okay. So uh, in your book, The Practice and Four, You write about Askda Ekmek. I hope <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I don't know how you pronounce it, but Askda Ekmek. I read this part. I called immediately my mom and I said, I go, Anne, Askda Ekmek. What does that mean? Because I never heard about it. You know, I speak Turkish and I live in Istanbul. And she explained me in her way, uh, if I may explain you, actually. I would love this. You're the first said. Turkish person I've talked to about this. <laughs> uh, she is from a very small village from Anatolia, Turkey. And she said, when we went to a bakery, we bought two or three or four loaves of bread. And we got one for uh, our house. And we left the others in a bag 
on the wall, on a hook for people that were coming by the village, nomads or people that had to overnight even that night in the village. And they even also had some kind of hostels for free or, um, you know, places where they, these people could stay. And this was like a form of uh, giving to people that were in need. And the funny part for me is you write in your book, that's an ancient Turkish tradition. For me, it happened in Virginia, the US at Thanksgiving, when I was in a Starbucks drive that a person uh, got me coffee. He didn't even know that I was in the car behind him with my friends and we got coffee for free. And I was like, why, what is this? He just bought us. Um, that's what she explained, but I'm curious to explain, uh, to hear from you, what you know about it, plus how we can be an askda ekmek, how we can hang on a wall bags with a loaf of bread or any other things for people that are in need. You made my day. Your mom made my day. <laughs> Give your mom a hug for me. Um, I will. I will. Yeah, I mean, what I've been to Istanbul, um, I did not experience it firsthand there. I think because Istanbul is more of a city now and less of a mm -hmm. village. But you describe it the way I describe it in the book, which is when the bread is on the hook, it means there is a surplus, not scarcity. It means that we have a chance to help other people. And there is an inherent scarcity in bread because there's only so much wheat in the world. Um, there is no inherent scarcity in ideas and in connection. The more ideas and connection, the more ideas and connection. It creates more. It's an abundant cycle. And so what it means to be on the hook is to say, I will make this podcast next week and the week after that and the week after that. And you can share it and you can spread it. And if it helps you get to the next level, that's why I made it. It's here. I am on the hook to make this podcast. It is my contribution. And most of us, if we're listening to a podcast, have enough agency at work or in our community that we can do something to put ourselves on the hook. And I think being on the hook is the best place to be. No place to hide when you're on the hook. No room for, I don't feel like it, because you have committed to doing something for the next person, to see them, to be present for them. And, you know, Azam, you're modeling that behavior and that's magical. That's why Akimbo exists is so that people who think there's got to be more to the work than this can find out what this is. And that is what you're exploring. Yeah. I have actually so many, many, many questions. We, uh, you know, 40 minutes is so short, I have to say. Um Let, let's just go to Akimbo, actually, just for a moment. Um, you know, in Akimbo, um, when I was there, there are few emotions I felt and also work I did. One, I felt valued. I felt seen. I felt heard. I felt that I got precious feedback from people. I learned how to give feedback. And initially I was thinking, Seth, like, okay, I need to do my work. You know, I need to do now. I can, don't have time for feedback. I don't really like also from a selfish area, maybe fear again. 
um, but it's really a magic there that people during the course, along the course, they feel, I really want to contribute here. I want to level other people up. How is that magic created? Or what is the magic even in Akimbo? Well, first, this is thrilling to hear. Uh, I don't run Akimbo anymore. It's an independent B Corp in the public interest run by its employees, owned by its employees. But um, the magic isn't in Akimbo. The magic is in the people who come to Akimbo and why they come. That it's inside each of us. But by the time someone signs up to be in one of these workshops, they are ready to engage in the magic and they bring it. Software doesn't bring it. You just have to create the environment. If you create the environment, people bring it. And what we found is it's a workshop because if you do the work, it works. And people who don't do the work, who just want to watch a bunch of videos, they don't get the joke. That what you figured out is that the best way to learn something is to teach somebody else how to do it. And so if we have all these people inside the workshop teaching each other, it turns out they get even more out of it than they put in. So while teaching each other in this workshop, you know, feedback was a very important point here. What is like a good way of giving good feedback, but also receiving precious feedback? Because sometimes we don't want to get feedback. We no. might be scared like, oh, this is an attack. Or <laughs> how do we receive, but also give precious yeah. feedback? No, it's a great question. Um, Feedback is easier to understand if you think about it as advice. And advice is easier to give if the person you're giving it to wants to get it. So if you walk up to a stranger on the street and say, here's some feedback, that suit is ugly, it's not going to make any difference whatsoever. On the other hand, if someone says, can I have your advice? Which shoes look better? In that moment, you have a platform to give somebody what they need. So part of what it is to give people advice is to say, it sounds like you're trying to accomplish X. And if they say, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Then you could say, well, what I have seen is that people who do this are more likely to get that outcome. Have you considered doing this? That's totally different than you're a bad person. You have bad taste. You don't know what you're doing and you did it wrong. Because in those things, we go like this, right? I don't, I, I want to protect myself. Yeah. If someone is lost on their way to Anatolia and they ask you for directions, they will probably listen to your advice on which route to take because they asked for direction. And it's a discipline to learn to accept advice. You might not be wired to do so. I am not often wired to do so because so much unsolicited feedback that I get is bad. Don't, don't go on the internet. It'll never amount to anything. It's stupid. It's not going to work. Don't start a company. It's too risky. You should go get a job. I mean, there's a long list of things. You know, the, the book that's over my shoulder, The Dip, which is only 96 pages long, my publisher didn't want to publish it. He said, it's too short. No one's going to read it. He's my publisher. Good thing I didn't take his advice. It's one of my best-selling books. So sometimes we have this need to drive anyway. But other times we can teach ourselves that if someone has a key and we have a lock and it unlocks the lock, we come out ahead. 
Oh, that's nice. Someone has the key. We have a lock and we come ahead. Okay. So Seth, I wrote a book eh? and when I, I, it was for me a creative book and I wrote it and I thought this is for everyone, you know, and unfortunately I didn't read your book. This is marketing where you, um, before that, I read it after actually, where uh, you talk a lot about smallest viable audience. So I, the public book was published and it did not become a bestseller. And even like, I didn't know what my smallest viable audience was. I thought everyone should read this because this is amazing. It's a story about the self-awareness, but how should I, or any other people that are having a product, uh, when should they define the smallest viable audience? Is that before starting the creative work in between or after well i think it might be different for different people for me it has to be before everything i'm doing is who am i trying to help here what do they believe what are they afraid of what do they want where are they if i don't know who those people are i can't write a thing and i don't know how i would do it after the fact some people can i made this thing i wonder who it fits but for me understanding that we are there to generously solve a problem for a very small group of people makes the work better. So you also said like, you know, knowing your audience 10 minutes before their own actions is a great thing, but how can we know that? How can we really know our audience? How can we see them and know that they might act in a way? Okay. So you're defining you're uh, talking about my definition of good taste, which I think is mine. Yes. Um, do you think you have good taste? I am not sure. I think I'm developing a good taste. Is it that is, a, what... is that Miro on the wall behind you? That painting? Yes, it's Miro. <laughs> it's Miro from uh, Madrid. I got it. Yeah. Or no, Barcelona or Madrid. Barcelona or okay. Madrid. And yeah. so I think you have good taste because... That's what I might have on the wall behind me. But there are other people who will come to your apartment and who won't get the joke. And yeah. who said, what is that? Why don't you just have something, you know, a rock star on there or whatever. So what it means to have good taste is before someone said you should have Moreau on the wall, you decided that there is a certain kind of person you're going to be entertaining or engaged with who will see that and realize that you're in their circle, Right. We make choices about how we dress, how we present in the world, what the cover of our book looks like, uh, the tone of our voice. All of these things are choices. And if people make the choice in a way that shows they understand the domain they are in, that they've done the reading, that they have the background, and that they're able to do it not after everyone else has, but just a little bit before everyone else has, they're a tastemaker. We say, oh, that person has good taste. And the way we get there is by immersing ourselves in the field, by looking around, by trying to understand why is it that that person on the magazine cover looks good and that person looks fake? Oh, they did this and this and this. And then you can just advance it to the next level. And domain knowledge is super important and way overlooked. You can't just show up and start setting type with the you know, tools built into your phone and expect 
people who understand typography to think you have good taste. They won't. But if you've done the work, if you've done your homework, if you can see what they see, then you have a much better chance of showing up as the professional you'd like to be. Okay. So Seth, how can people that are listening to us now be part of your tribe? I would say your tribe. Well, that's kind of, I don't have a tribe. It's really clear. There is a tribe of people that you were in before you even knew who I was. And sometimes I get to talk to those people. Sometimes I get to be the, the marker of good taste for those people, but they're not mine, right? That the, the group belongs to the group. And it is the group of people who think there needs to be more, who want to level up, who are generous, who have good taste, who want even better taste, who want to make connection, who want to see other people, who are in a hurry to make things better, who have optimism and resilience. I'm proud to be part of that tribe, but it's not mine. Um, you can read all 8,000 posts at Seth.blog, and um, you can find out about the workshops at akimbo.com. My podcast is at akimbo.link. And um, you can find my books at sethgodin.com. So that's plenty of places to look. But I didn't come here to talk about me. I came here because I'm just really thrilled that you're in leadership and thrilled that you have a podcast. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Seth, for making the time. And I really hope to see you soon back on Bridging. Thank you so much for listening. If you have loved this episode, please leave a review. You can find more about my mindset coaching, book the students and daily blog at ozkanozlem.com or my Instagram ozkanozlem, O-Z-K-A-N-O-Z-L-E-M.